This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Club in Real Life, our live event in San Diego, March 12th through 14th. Get your tickets now at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash T-C-C-I-R-L. What if you could hang with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 178 as we chat with author and business coach Charlie Gilkey about how to take an idea from start to finish, what it takes to level up your business, how to effectively use time to get more done, and what it takes to do your best work. Charlie, welcome. Hey, Charlie. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, we're pumped. We're, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, so let's just start, Charlie, with your story for anyone who doesn't know you as well. How did you end up as an executive coach, a speaker, an author, and a philosopher? Well, when it comes to the executive coach, speaker, and author bit, all of that was like super accidental. I fell into this like back ass word um, <laughs> in the sense where um, I had come back. So let's roll back to sort of 2006, 2007. I'd recently come back from being a deployed soldier for Operation Iraqi Freedom, and I still had my career as an army officer. I was a logistics officer, and I was also pursuing my PhD in philosophy. So I'm a social um, philosopher and an ethicist. And, um, you know, it seems so sophomoric now looking back as a 40-year-old, looking back at my 26-year-old self, but my 26-year-old self was like, I got to get my stuff together. I'm just not making it happen. Like, I'm just not getting stuff done. You know. What I would say now is like, you've got two careers, dummy, like <laughs> chill, <laughs> right? Um, but at the time, I was just like, oh, I'm not making it happen. So I did what any good scholar and any good officer would do. It was like, look, I'm not the only person that's had this problem. Someone else has figured this out. So I started doing the research and I found that I was having to do a lot of synthesis and translation of what I was reading from the productivity literature, which tended to be really granular really sort of focused on tasks and, you know, just really focused on sort of lower level stuff and the personal development literature, which tended to be pretty lofty. Um, but my problem was this messy world in the middle of projects. I had all these projects that just wasn't getting done. And so I did, you know, what any good scholar and philosopher would do is I started teaching other people about this sort of stuff. And, you know, it seems really funny that like here I was already overwhelmed, but then I decided to start a business right on top of everything else I was doing, teaching people how to do this. And it's just kind of grown organically since then. Um, were it not for Naomi Dumford, who um, is a brilliant marketer and copywriter, um, basically put me on the spot and almost damn near make me put my coaching page up. I, I wouldn't have been a coach. Um, because again, that wasn't in my career trajectory. I didn't grow up around entrepreneurs and business people. Like People like me didn't seem to start businesses like this. And so it's been just this huge blessing. And great fun ride and it's still growing and still changing as, a, as we're talking. So I'm really curious, you know, can you tell us a little bit more what you do as a coach? And we know a few people who have worked with you one-on-one. -on -one, so I'm curious, you know, what does that engagement look like? And what are the typical things that at least somebody starts out wanting to work on when they uh, hire you? You know, this is going to be one of those harder questions to answer, but I'll, I'll try to be succinct on it. Um, really, what I do is I help people work on the root cause strategic issues in their business. I'm a strategy execution specialist. 
And so typically they'll come to me and they'll be like, hey, Charlie, like I'm stuck or my business isn't making money or I can't figure out why this offer isn't working. Um, or sometimes it's, hey, my team is like, we're just not getting it done. And so we really go in and figure out what's going on and um, what an engagement typically looks like. And what makes me sometimes a terrible coach is that um, there are plenty of times where I don't think my clients have the answers. Right. There's there's a part, of, especially from the coaching industry, and I'm not going to get too much into insider baseball, but there's a part of the sort of shtick that the client owns the answers. But when you start talking about in a business context and in an executive concept, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and you can't see what you can't see. Um, and so we we focus on the three to five things that are going to make the biggest difference in the business. And then every other week we come together and just work until we fix it. I mean, and along the ways, like if you're in business for any amount of time, what you figure out is you solve one problem and create three others. Um, and so it's kind of job security for me in a sense where it's like we're, we're creating new challenges as we go, but it's not the same damn challenge over and over and over again. So we might go from a um, solopreneur business that's stuck at the um, owner executive's capacity and then break through that by either changing markets or adding team, um, you know, team capacity to it. But then they've got managerial challenges and, you know, then you have to cat, you have to forecast cash flow a little bit differently. So um, the reason it's super tricky for me to say what it is I do is because, you know, if I were like a marketing strategist, I would say like, yo, I help them build their funnel and blah, blah, blah. Like I'd have like three or four things that I work on, but I'm, I'm that really well-versed generalist um, that can walk into a situation, figure out what's going on and start writing the ship as we go. All right. I want to talk about the insider baseball piece of it because a lot of like copywriters in our community are developing their own um, programs and communities and are getting into coaching. Um, Rob and I do some of that in our groups. And it is it has been a struggle too for me because of what you said. I feel like what I've been told to do is to like ask provocative questions that help the person you're mentoring figure out the answer. And half the time, I just want to tell them the answer. And so I feel like I have this inner conflict all the time um, that seems like you've worked through. So I think my question is more generic around like, how can we become better coaches if that is a part of our business model? Um, how can we think about it in a, a way that helps us better serve the people who are hiring us, working with us? That's a great question, Kara. And I don't want to disparage the value of being able to ask really good questions. And the the reason why coaching as a profession, as that modality focuses on questions, is because it centers the client's experience. It centers the client's expertise and their strengths and shows them that they have a way to go forward. And it doesn't make the coach the expert. It makes the client the expert. And there's a lot of value in that. And Kira, you've probably been in those conversations to where you've asked all the provocative questions for 30, 45 minutes. And then it's, get, it's like super exasperating. The client knows that you have a, a certain, you know, something going on and they just don't know how to answer. You start drawing pictures and playing. You start pictionary. drawing pictures and playing pictionaries and charades and, you know, and so um, my stance and I tell prospects and clients this up front is my job is to help you get from A to B uh, by whatever ethical means possible. And if that means that at some times I just need to pause and say, look, look, this is a teaching moment. I'm just going to teach you some stuff, right, that you don't know. Or this is a mentoring moment or this is a consulting moment. Like I can pick the modality that I need to in that moment to get the client where they need to go. 
And one question that I will sometimes ask clients is like, okay, well, do you want me to be more of a coach here or do you want me to be more of a consultant? Because sometimes, and I'm thinking of a client that, that um, I unfortunately was not able to meet yesterday because I was sick. Um, there are times where she's just like, Charlie, just tell me what the answer is. Like, I'm frustrated. <laughs> I've been dealing with this for the last decade. Like, can you tell me what the answer is, if there's an answer, and then we can work through it. And like, because, and she's a super powerful coach herself. So, you know, but there are sometimes, and um, there, I will say this, Kira, this, this may be taking us completely off tangent. Like, part of working with creative people, is knowing how to create useful defaults that they can either take and run with or that they can rebel against and find their own answers, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. sometimes it's like you have to say something for the client to know that it doesn't fit them, but then they've had the insight. There's like, oh, now I know what I need to do because yeah. the pathway that you said is clearly not me. I'm not going to do that. You're wrong. I'm going to go do this. I'm like, great. We're where we need to be. And so that's a, that's a really big depend, Kira. Like, can you give us an example of like what those creative defaults look like uh, so that somebody can react to them? Sort of putting you on the spot. I know that that may not be a fair question, but. Well, it's a fair question. Well, I'll put you guys on the spot here. Here's how we're going to roll with this. Um, oh, thanks, if, Rob. If, yeah, thanks, Rob. <laughs> if one of you have an issue that you're currently working through right now, then I could probably show you what I mean, like in the actual instance, but it would just take a little bit of three to five minutes of hot seat stuff. Are we, are we able to do Rob, that? Rob has some issues. I volunteer, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rob. Here we go. Well, we've all got issues, but let's say let's say that I have we have a business challenge, and um, I mean, you know, obviously we're working through things all the time. But let's say that we want to um, sell tickets to our event, and ticket sales uh, are slower than what we had hoped, or um, you know, maybe we want to generate some additional. Uh, maybe they actually they're on track, but we want to uh, generate some additional uh, attention and excitement about the event that we have coming up. Uh, is that? A big enough problem to, to that, work That's with? a big enough problem. So, okay. um, and I'm just going to steal some of the stuff from my great friend, Michael Bungay Stanier. So if you're interested in being coaches, go read his book. Um, his, his, book. His, his, the Coaching Habit is just one of those must read. He's got another one coming out called The Advice Trap. Just read both. You'll thank me and, but more importantly, thank him. And so Rob, for that, like based upon what you're seeing, what's the real challenge? Um, well, I mean, we want to have as many people in our community as possible at the event. Uh, you know, so there's that. There's obviously some financial challenges in the back. You know, in order to put on an event, it takes quite a bit of money, and so more ticket sales makes it possible for us to do more good things at an event. Um, so th those are probably maybe the two biggest drivers for me. And what else? I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. I'll jump in with what else. Um, so and what else is how do we have time to do it? Right, there are a billion things we could do that you could tell us to do. Um, but we're both stretched and overwhelmed with what's currently on our plate. So how do we create space to focus on event promotion? Great. Okay. So um, we can go down this, but um, Kira, thanks for that second bit because Rob, your first ones were ba basically the top line issues, yeah. right? The, 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 one of the deeper issues is how do we make time for this? And if we were to dig two or three levels under that, it's yeah. actually how are we prioritizing our time with everything else we've got going on so that we make sure that we don't sacrifice our core business for this new business offer, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in the context of making a useful constraint, what we might do is talk about some different ways that you might do that. And you might go through sort of like a Goldilocks principle of like, what's the most ambitious plan or strategy that we can create to get there? 
And then what's a medium one and what's a small one? And once we start creating some of those constraints, you guys might see like, wait a second, we can't do the most ambitious one because we got these other core parts of our business that we're working on. Okay, so we can't do that. Um, what I would say is, okay, if we start going towards like a moderate or a medium or a smaller size plan, what we might have to do then is adjust expectations to match the plan, right? And because this may be leaning a little bit into the book a little bit, but what so often happens is when we tack on something like an event on top of our core business, right? Um, sometimes, well, what I would often tell clients is the event business, like the event stream of revenue is actually a completely different type of business. The metrics of what's going to make it successful are different than what's going to make everything else successful. So you got to look at how much you're resourcing, what's essentially this new side hustle on top of your current hustle and check your expectations. Because if you're putting in a quarter effort or you're putting in a third effort, you're going to get a quarter or third results. It's not going to get the, the results of the rest of your business. So what we would do in that sort of context, if we had more time, is like figure out like, okay, what are those constraints? What are those defaults that you can say, you know what, that's useful. I can run with that and make it work. Or Charlie, like what you're talking about completely does not make sense. Here's what's right. And once I get a client that's super defined about here's what's right, like, great. Okay. Now, how do we get behind that and commit to that? Because you've already put, you've already drawn this line in the sand. Does that help guys? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And you know, obviously, most people listening aren't trying to put on an event, but they may be struggling with, you know, finding clients or you know, building their own authority. Um, maybe they're even struggling with the craft, and so that sort of gives us a useful framework to say, okay, then, um, you know, what are the real issues and what are the constraints on accomplishing those kinds of things as well? Yeah, and how do your expectations um, align with your efforts? Um, because what I see so often. Um, in business is that we want to put in like small or moderate effort behind something, but we want really epic or extreme result results. Like we want to sell out our first event. Well, turns out that's super hard, right? Most people, if no one's told you that, and I know we're focusing on an event, but whatever it is, like if you want to go from nothing to fully booked, nothing to full event, nothing to an epic launch, what you got to realize is most people don't do that on their first two or three runs right? All the really epic events that are sold out, the courses that are sold out, the coaches that are, that are fully booked, they've had a few runs at this and you're seeing um, you know, sort of the final version or you're seeing a more perfected version of that. You didn't see their beta runs. You didn't see the launches or the, you didn't see that course that they offered to six people that they made a private invitation to, to make it a success. Um, and part of this is just this myopic social media online marketing game that we can get into that, you know, we amplify our hits and that's when it ends up getting sticky. And we sort of do the work that marketers do is like we kick the, the you know, the runts and we kick everything else that didn't work under the carpet. No one sees that. So it becomes super challenging because when you're that person doing something for the first or second time, you're comparing your results against the highlighted versions of everyone else's results. And it can create a lot of head trash and things like that. So really so much of my work with clients is really about setting expectations and plans and timelines that are actually much more sane, much more strategically sound, and much more likely to get the results that we're trying to get rather than 
shooting for the moon, getting frustrated that we didn't even get off the damn planet, um, and then beating ourselves up for three months and wondering what the hell's wrong with us. Yeah, I love that idea or the, even that question, how do your expectations align with your efforts? Because that's something I struggle with too, right? It's over um, expecting too much and then not putting enough effort for it. Uh, so I think that leads me to my next question about when you're working with clients and you're focused on maybe the three to five uh, projects or what's most critical um, to help them move forward from a coach perspective and also just thinking about copywriters who are aware of those challenges or projects that are most critical and will help them the most, but they get stuck somewhere along the way and they aren't putting time into that or on the business development side because for copywriters, they oftentimes just will prioritize client work over their business growth. How do you help them other than controlling their schedule and like pinging them and telling them, okay, do it now. How do you help them start to make progress and work towards it? Uh, is it like just a motivational talk? Um, maybe it is being really practical and making a realistic plan, but how do you help them get this stuff done and make progress? Yeah, see, it's actually not about the plan. It's about the mindset. And um, I know in this space, we can talk about mindset a lot, but a lot of people don't realize how scared of their own success they are. And I've seen so many super brilliant people have the perfect plan, the perfect talent, well, by perfect, you know, great plans, great talents, um, and have the time, but end up not pulling the trigger because they're afraid of their own success. So, so for instance, um, because I have worked with enough copywriters, I know that one of the tricks becomes like, if I do all of this marketing and I do all of this, you know, I put all my great copywriting stuff on, what am I going to do about the clients that I'm going to get when I'm already overwhelmed with client delivery as I am? And what they haven't realized is that they created a no-win scenario for themselves in that um, success means more clients, but at a certain point, they don't want more clients because they're already overwhelmed. They're already stressed out about it, right? So why would I want more of that? And so when it comes time for them to actually do the work of putting that copy up, like, I'm just going to serve the clients okay, because that's where my stress is, right? That's actually where my stress is. So um, then we have to sort of, um, I hate to say shift the goalpost because of the political atmosphere that's being used a certain way, but we have to sort of change and say, what's up? Like, no, maybe it's not about getting more clients. Maybe it's about getting better clients, right? And so we have to look at some of those issues. But so part of it is figuring out what their true fears are. And their true fears are often not the first two or three things they'll tell you, right? Because, um, you know, it'll be like, oh, well, you know, if I do that, then I'll get more clients. Well, what if we dove in and really looked at what's going on, what they would end up saying is, I'm going to be more overwhelmed. I'm going to have less of my life. And, you know, for many copywriters, perhaps it might be, I actually want to do like this course thing, or I actually want to like write a book or I actually want to get married. And if I'm successful with this business, with this project, it's going to get in the way of that thing that I actually really want. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing, but I'm not going to like really get honest with that. Right. And so again, so much of it's about honesty and it's about these expectations. And think about it this way, guys, like we don't need a coach or a productivity system or accountability buddy to eat ice cream. 
or whatever your favorite dessert, dessert right? <laughs> like we don't need all of that. Like it's in front of us and we eat it and we enjoy it. And then we wonder, why did I eat a whole damn carton of this, you know, ice cream? <laughs> um, or maybe that's just me. Um, but, and there's an insight to there. Like, why is it that when it comes to some of these other things, we require all this excess motivation and accountability and so on and so forth. So part of it is getting back to the root of joy, curiosity, adventure, flow that got people started with their creative endeavor in the first place. And once I could tap into that ice cream, then we can start having other conversations because it turns out given, you know, all sorts of stuff comes up. So for instance, women in our culture who are socialized to not actually deserve to be happy for whatever reason, a lot of times when they actually are in the position to where they can eat the ice cream, they don't think they deserve it or there's something wrong with it or something. So they put all sorts of berries in it because they fundamentally cannot handle the idea that they can just be happy or that they can just do their thing and get paid well for it. And it doesn't have to be a freaking drama story about it, right? It's just what is. And so you have to get into some of these deeper level issues that actually are not about time management. They're not about planning. They're not about what's in a sauna. They're about how you see yourself in the world and how you understand what you deserve and what's available for you and how you accept that. I know super mindset, deep stuff here, but that's really what's keeping people beyond. Like, and it, you know, when I'm working with clients, usually they come with me like, Charlie, okay, what's my pricing? I need to work on my program, blah, blah, blah. Two, three months into it, once we've sort of worked out all the things, like you got all of the things. You're just not pulling the trigger here. And it's not about needing better copy. It's not about needing a better program. It's not about needing a different client. It's about you having to look at yourself and say, look, you are doing something that has value. And I don't give a shit what Joanna's doing. I don't give a shit about what Val's doing. Your people are in front of you needing help. Are you going to get into it or not? And those are some of the hard questions. Like the hardest question I ask my clients, guys, is what do you really want? And not what do you want, but what do you like really want? Man, that will send people on all sorts of an existential well. well. <laughs> yeah, not to mention that now I've got the Spice Girls going off in my head. So yeah, what, what you really want? Yeah, I exactly. It. So um, you've mentioned that time management isn't the answer, but it feels like time management is a component of this, even if it doesn't get us to the really deep mindset stuff. Like how much time management fixing do we need to do in order to get things done and, and to accomplish uh, the things that we want? Or, or is it really truly a matter of once the mindset's right, the time management takes care of itself? No, it doesn't. It's not at all. That once the mindset's right. No, <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Yeah, I wish yeah. it was that easy. That's uh, I mean, you're ruining my morning, Charlie. You know, I do that a lot. Um, <laughs> so I don't get invited to a lot of parties either. Um, so here's the thing. Um, it's not like once you figure out what you want, like the world's like automatically aligned. It's like, all right, here, Kira, you've wanted this for years. We're going to like move all of our priorities and all of our projects out of the way so you could do your thing. Um, that's not quite the way that it works. And so um, at a certain point, when we, when we start talking about time management, I want to shift the conversation to, all right, where are you putting your reps in, right? Where are you doing the deep work? And so in, in the book, I, I talk about four different types of um, blocks of time that you need to look at. And um, one of them are your focus blocks. And focus blocks are 90 to 120 minute blocks of time where you get into that um, maybe for copywriters, it's going to be, you know, 
um, around writing great copy or coming up with a marketing strategy or, you know, actually sitting down and doing that copywriting checklist that you've been telling yourself you're going to do for the last three years. Right. Um, or it could be the hard work that you got to do to, to develop a training program so that you can get some assistance on your actual thing. Like what I find most people are lacking is not. Well, I'll say it this way. Most people don't have enough focus blocks in their schedule to do the work that they want to do. Right. And so when I tell people as a general rule, think about three focus blocks per week per significant project. And people's like, wait a second, I don't have one focus block a week. How the hell am I going to make this happen? So we have to do some schedule adjustment to make that go in there, which means we have to get into some, um, you know, conversations about what's going to get displaced. What are you going to choose not to do? Um, how are you going to stop doing the things that you're doing that's getting you what you're getting so that you can do something new that gets this new thing that you want? Um, and so that schedule calibration can take a while because, again, if you look at most people, and again, if I say three focus blocks per week per significant project, I um, mean, you look at the fact that like for most of us getting two focus blocks a day, a work day is a really good thing. And so we can start looking at it and say, okay. So on a sort of normal week, when we're not traveling, we're not doing all this other random stuff and kids aren't sick and things like that, at most I have 10 focus blocks. All right, bet. So with that, how are those going towards the projects that matter most? You have to start making some decisions, right? Because it turns out for copywriters, if you've got 10 focus blocks per week and you're in, you know, you've got enough clients, six to eight of those are probably taken up with client work. And that's just real. And so that means that you have two focus blocks a week left remaining for things like blogging, remaining for things like, you know, working on that course, remaining for things like working on your speech. And it's not that you're uniquely defective. Or you don't know what the hell's going on. It's just that you don't have enough capacity to do what it is that you need to do. And I've worked with, you know, some folks I was thinking on one, one copywriter I'm working with right now where we actually had to put her on a revenue ceiling where I was like, look, yo, you can't sell that much coaching time or you can't sell that much copywriting time. And that means if you're selling over 10 K, we got a problem because that means you're not going to be able to do this other thing we've been talking about you doing. It's just not mathematically going to work. And so if you're will, if you're really wanting to do this other thing, that means we got to let go of some of this revenue. And man, that causes all sorts of like a thing like, wait a second, I'm supposed to turn down revenue. But I'm like, really, what we're looking at is these focus blocks. And we have a trade off that we have to make here. What do you really want? Okay. Is this what you refer to as the heat map, heat mapping our schedule in your book? Is that kind of a similar concept with the focus blocks or is that something else? They're very much related. So heat mapping is basically the idea that, you know, um, Sometimes you're creatively and mentally hot and other times you're not, right? And it largely does depend upon what chronotype you are, chronotype being the when, um, when your biorhythms are through the day. So we know that there are some people that are morning owls. We know that some, excuse me, morning larks is what they're called. They're early morning birds, right? We know there's some people who are night owls. Um, and then we know that there's what Dan Pink calls third birds. I call emus, which are these people that get fired up in the afternoon. Right. So morning people, afternoon people, night people and figuring out. And, and I love that we're talking about copywriters here because I'm assuming that you have a lot of autonomy of your schedule. Right. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. And so there's no reason why if you're hot in the morning and that's when you do your best creative work, 
why the hell are you scheduling appointments in the morning? Right? Because what you're saying is this time, this period of time, which for most of us is four to six hours of a day where we're in that zone, right? If you put a couple of doctor's appointments in there, guess what? You're not going to be able to do that heavy lifting work that you've been wanting to do. And so where this comes in, Kira, is focus blocks are best put in the times of the day where you're the hottest. So if you're that emu that's on fire from like 12 to 5 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when you should schedule your focus blocks to do your best work. And maybe for you, that, or maybe for that person, it would make sense for them to have meetings in the morning. Um, and so you really have to align your schedule in that way and not look at it as if time was like all bits of time were equal because sometimes you got it, sometimes you don't. Yeah, I think my struggle is I don't I don't think I'm a lark or an owl or an emu. I don't think I'm any of those. I don't know what I am. I'm a right, zebra. Kira, so let's when jump in they... Um so when it no, for real though, when it when it, so let's go to you know, you might have to go to the distant past. I hope not, but like go back to a holiday period or a vacation period where you actually had a few days off. When did you have the most energy? Yeah, it'd be earlier in the day, definitely. On vacation. So that yeah. So that's what I would say is, and the reason I go there is because Kira, I'm betting that, um, and, and push back if I'm not correct about this, but I'm betting that you're um, super responsive to other people, maybe um, leaning towards a bit of people pleasing side of things. Yes. Okay. How'd you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, heard it on the head. Yeah. Heard it in Just the voice. A little bit. Just a little bit. Um, so what that means is how you orient to your day is based upon other people's needs and priorities. Yeah. Right? Um, and so what your first answer was, well, like, I don't know who I am. Like, in the back of your mind, you're probably saying, well, it depends on what other people are needing from me when we, if we were to ask two or three levels deeper. But that's actually not true. Right? How you choose to prioritize your time is based upon other people's priorities. But when you look at your natural energy, you came to the answer that you're an early morning person pretty quickly. So the, the coaching work that we would do together, Kira, would be like, okay, so we got some work to do there. What do we need to do to look at your schedule so that one, on the just the tactical side, that you're not seeing other people's needs first? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't unfeel it. You can't deprioritize it, right? So that's one thing. And two would be the sort of the mindset piece of like, Kira, why is your time? Why is your needs? Why is what work on what, what you need? not as important as what other people need. All right, Charlie, I want you as my coach. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Okay, um, okay I want to circle back and thank you. That was helpful. Um, I'm going to circle back because I can't let this question go. And I know this is kind of going backwards now, but we were talking about helping people figure out what they really want. And you mentioned like when you ask that question, people just kind of go nuts. And that's something that I feel like when I've talked about that with copywriters and ask them that question and added the really like, what do you really want? What is that big, scary thing? Um, it's really hard to get answers, even when it's, you know, in a conversation one on one, it's like a trusted relationship. So do you have advice for copywriters who are listening who really struggle answering that question and maybe aren't quite don't feel like they have mission to figure out what they want, or they just don't even know how to think that big about like the really big vision and to go that big, because I feel like that is where so many of us struggle. That's a great question. And I said it was a hard, one of the hardest questions that I'll ask people. It's also hard to articulate how to get to, to where people need to be. 
one of the things that, and I mentioned it earlier, is, man, we're so schizophrenic about happiness in that we want it, but when it gets, when we get closer to it, we start pushing it away and we start fighting against it. We start wondering if we deserve it. And so part of it is getting to a point of letting people understand and really sink in the fact that like what makes them happy, what gives them pleasure, what gives them meaning and purpose is enough. Right. Unfortunately, because we're talking in an entrepreneurial context, we try to shoehorn meaning into money. Right. And that if we're making a certain amount, if we're selling out a certain amount, if our rates are certain things, then that's success. Maybe that's happiness. Turns out it's not. Right. And that's the hard thing. I've been in this game long enough. I've worked people at at the very highest levels who are fundamentally unhappy because money is a very poor substitute for meaning. And so looking and saying, like, what are the things that actually make you happy? When's the last time? What makes you laugh? Um, what gives you the warm fuzzies? Um, if you didn't have to make money, what would you do? Some of those types of questions can be really powerful for opening people up to seeing how their business serves that or maybe gets in the way of that, right? Um, and I've had so many, especially service-based clients, who really just love being a great coach or a great consultant, or they love being a great copywriter or designer, they get beat up in the entrepreneurial space about scaling and about, you know, that they should have teams and that they should be doing blah, blah, blah. When the fact of the matter is, they want to work with clients and create great copy. That's what they really wake up in the morning to do. It's fun. But they haven't allowed themselves to do that. And that that's enough. Um, and so part of it is just syncing with that and being being really okay because i mean part of it is we've spent so much of our friggin' lives in these ladders man of like you go to school you get the grade you get the grade you get to the next grade you get you know you graduate you get a job and there are all these sort of things you got to do to get to the place of the thing that makes you happy and then you get out here and you figure out that part of adulting is realizing that like there aren't so many damn steps in between that right like if it turns out that if what makes you happy is being with your daughter for the, you know, five or six hours of the day and playing with her, then you know what? Like maybe we design a business that lets you do that and that's enough, right? Maybe you don't build that micro agency that all your high level mastermind friends keep telling you to build. And I know I'm being, I'm speaking really generic here, Kira, but you got to really explore some of those things and what's really going to get people out of bed for the long game. Because too often, like in this world of social media and online success, man, like we sort of focus on that short game. But I, I want my clients to be thinking, like, how are you going to be in the game for a decade or two? Right. How are you going to build a life around this business rather than thinking that there's going to be some quick thing? And now here's what I'll say, though. There are some people who are super ambitious and they want to flip a business in three years. They want to start it, grow it and flip it. All right. Cool. But here's some things we're going to have to do to do that. And is that what you really want? Because if you don't really want that, then maybe that's not the path for, way for you, right? And so, again, no, I'm talking around a lot of different things, but it's really dialing into that thing that's going to get clients to say, you know what, this is worth getting up a little bit extra in the morning, or getting up a little earlier in the morning. This is worth staying a little bit later. This is worth the blood, sweat, and tears that I'm going to put behind this for the next two or three years. Um, and if it's not worth it, then at the end of the day, what they're going to end up doing is accepting 
a bunch of BS projects and responsibilities and end up stuck and frustrated um, and still no further towards where they're really trying to go. But Charlie, I have to know when you ask the question, what do you really want? Has anybody ever said, I just want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix? Yes, actually. Um, and that has almost always come from the voice of being tired of the grind. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Yeah, for sure. Right. But when I look at, because I mean, you're not, you're not a copywriter if you're not creative straight up. Right. Um, usually you're some type of word nerd, right. Um, or you're someone who less likes taking ideas to put them together. So you're creative by nature. Right. And I fundamentally like people are like, I'm a procrastinator. I don't think we're inherently procrastinators. I think we can be inherently scared of shit. Right. That's true. But you're not in a copywriting business. You don't own your own business if you're fundamentally lazy and uncreative and not ambitious. Probably you're tired and you may be stuck and you may not have been touching onto that thing that makes you happy. Um, and so I think there are some people who, um, perhaps they're just media buffs and they would just want to spend all day watching movies. And that's great. I'm not judging that, but I think most of us that's coming from a place of tired or frustrated or stuck. Um, and they just want to sort of check out. But once we get beyond that and sort of acknowledge that, and it's like, okay, so let's imagine you've watched Netflix for three weeks or three weeks or three months. (laughs) What would you want to do? What would you want to do after that? And that's the thing. I mean, how many of us, actually don't want to go on vacation because after three days of not having our work and devices, we don't know what the hell to do with ourselves. Right. Those, those, that's who we are at our core of Rob. And so I I definitely want to acknowledge that we can feel in that moment, man, I just want to watch Netflix. I just want to play video games. Like if I had my chance, like I would just like go to Spain for like ever. It turns out after, you know, two, three weeks, even Hulu. Yeah, you, then you yeah. got Hulu. Or you, you got, got Hulu. Home. You got something. But at a certain point, you're going to start getting creatively constipated. For right? Sure. You're going to have to create something. You're going to have to do something. And my question is, what is that? It is it that sci-fi series that you've been telling yourself you're going to write? Is it you know that backyard garden project that you've been putting off for years? Um, is it going and hanging out with your dad before he passes? Like, what is that? And let's get to it. Yeah, so that's that's really what I want to ask is what tools can we use? Maybe it's something that you coach people on in order to build that vision for the thing that we really want. Because you ask that question, what do you really want? That's not really a 30-second answer, right? It's not something that easily comes, at least not to me, in 30 seconds. I need to really think through, you know, if I had the time, if I had, you know, if money wasn't an option, you know, what could that look like? So what kind of tools do you have to help us build what that vision ought to be? Yeah. So um, one that I've stolen from uh, Cameron Harold from Double Double was the painted picture exercise. And the painted picture exercise is basically imagining three to five years in the future, what you want your day to look like. Right. And at a broad level, like, how would you show up to work? What would you be doing? What, you know, and sort of not thinking about the projects you would be doing, but what would you want your day to be like? Would you, you know, be going to work at seven because you're an early morning person and getting off at three? Um, Would you, you know, who would you be talking to? What types of problems would you be involved in and things like that? So that could be a great exercise there. A second piece would be really, as much as I don't like the bucket list conversation, it does have some value. Because, um, 
you know, I wrote about it in the book in that when we look at it, most significant projects, the ones that are going to define our lives and make the biggest difference, take three to five years to work through. So there's a simple math problem we can do here. Subtract your age from 85, divide by five. That's the amount of significant projects that you have remaining in your life to do. How would you want to spend that time? What would you want to be on that project board at the end of your life? You say, you know what? I did that. Um, and I'm proud of it. Win, lose, or draw. And it could be writing books. It could be traveling. It could be things like that. So it's kind of that bucket list version of starting to think of like, okay, time is very, very finite, man. Um, what matters? And, and the reason I like that particular question is because that starts to getting to like super meaningful projects. Because those, you know, I'm 40 now. And so if I did that same sort of thing, I've got like nine projects remaining left in my life. Um, those are the ones I want to like actually mean something. Like those are the ones that would be sort of that tombstone picture. And choosing to do a lot of, not to do a lot of other things to do those ones. Like even if I couldn't articulate exactly why some of the projects would be on that board, that they are and that they fight their way onto it is compelling. Um, so that would be another exercise. Um, think about it is, and there's a question I ask in my coaching intake survey, and it's basically short version of it, or at least a paraphrase of it. Like most of us tell ourselves that at some point when we have it all figured out and we've got the money squared away, that we're going to do, you know, something. What is that thing? And I've heard people tell me all sorts of things. Like they want to start nonprofits. They want to do all sorts of things. And part of my job and part of the reason I ask that is because my job is to bring that future forward faster, right? Let's not make that shit 20 years. Let's make it five. Let's make it three. Let's make it one. Maybe it's tomorrow, right? And so, um, Rob, they're not super like, here are the seven steps you have to get to this answer because that's not the type of exercise that this is. But it is the type of thing that you're absolutely right. It takes people two weeks, a month, conversations, you know, um, and sometimes it just comes to them in some weird workout or meditation or, you know, during sex and like, oh, that's what it is. And that's where we got to get to. All right. So, Charlie, I want to ask you, you mentioned, you know, you've been in this business for a while. You've seen people come and go. Um, I'm just curious to know, since you kind of stepped into this space. And you've seen people that you've worked with, or maybe even people you've admired from afar, colleagues. Um, what's the difference between the people who kind of are still there and are still creating meaningful work and have made it, whatever made it means, happiness, um, compared to people who didn't make it and gave up or um, realized just wasn't for them? What is that difference? Because really like I'm interested in the long game and I feel like it is sometimes hard to find those examples, especially in like an online marketing space of people who have done that and created this long game and made it work for them. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the philosopher in me wants to say meaning. Those people who have found meaning in their work and in their relationships with their other people, but that may not be super useful or tactical. Um, I, the people that fizzle are the people that are that are chasing this social success game. So they're looking at the numbers, they're looking at the sort of, you know, social media followings, they're looking at the size of their list, or they're following that numbers game, and they're not following necessarily that um, game of meaning, of happiness, of joy, of creativity, of adventure. And so um, I was working with, um, I was working with someone who's now become, um, he's had great success with his book. And there was a certain point where um, 
you know, we were talking about the work and he was struggling with writing the book. And I was like, look, um, if you can't find the adventure and the wonder and the curiosity in yourself in this project, you're not going to finish this book and it's not going to be a success. You can't write this book from the place of I've got to write a successful book. I've got to do that. Like you've got to write, you've got to be in it and you've got to be creating art in that way. You've got to be solving that problem. Um, you know, in this particular um, client was what's much more of the scientist profile. So it's like, you got to be solving these problems. You got to be doing that. And in the lab yourself, curious about it, or you're not going to finish the book. It's not going to be success. Other people show up as an artist. Other people show up as an innovator. Like there are different ways we show up in the world. And so finding that way to stick with that curiosity and to stick with it. And the other thing that I would say is having the courage to continually reinvent your work and yourself as you go. Um, and to realize that maybe there's an earlier version of yourself that was wrong or incomplete and that you've got to go through and correct that and fix that. Or seeing that, you know what, I thought my work was about X. It's really about why, and I'm willing to let go of this brand around, you know, copywriting for um, Instagram or copywriting for whatever, and understand that that was just a moment in time. There's something deeper you've been working on and making that leap into that unknown and sucking again all over again, because that sucks, man. Like when you've built up, especially as copywriters and consultants and coaches, so much of why we get paid is because we're supposed to know what the hell we're doing. And to go into that space to where we're humble enough to be like, I don't know what I'm doing again. That's hard. And that's where you got to go to be able to do this time and time again. And I would probably say, and they're, they may sound like their intention, but knowing what your lawn is and fighting for that lawn. For instance, I was, um, let me explain that. Um, Start Finishing is really a book that I, quote unquote, should have written about six or eight years ago. And it's not that I didn't have the work because it's, it's lived in different gyms and seeds on productive flourishing for a long time. But about the time that I started writing and thinking about putting it all together, Deep Work by Cal Newport came out. And I was like, man, Cal said everything I was going to say. Like, do we really need another freaking productivity book? Because there's like 1,800 popped out a day. Do we really need another? And so I was like, I'm good, man. Like, and so I hid from that work and I hid from Cal's work and things like that. And no disrespect to Cal, Deep Work is a great book. I loved, And it took me years to finally read it because I was like, I don't want to be shut down. But then um, about the time I was going to market for Start Finishing, um, Buddy emailed me. He's like, hey, yo, did you see that um, um, Acuff is right? John Acuff is writing Finish or he's publishing Finish. And I was, I was like, oh, man, here we go again. But that time I was like, you know what? This is my lawn, bro. Like, this is, I've been doing this for a long time, man. And I'm not going to get deep worked all over again. And I was like, this is not, there's a, there's a healthy way of saying this is my turf. I'm not saying that John can't play in it and finishes a great book. He did his thing, man. But I was like, you know, this is a patch of the universe that I've been working for a long time. And this is sort of my lawn, dude. Like, I got to tend my lawn. And there are people here looking at this for me. So I'm like, whatever John wrote is great. I'm going to write something different. And that, you know, there's four or five years of creative maturity that happened in that process 
But at a certain point, you got to know what your lawn is and you got to be able to stand up and defend it and own it and stick with it when other people start coming on it and understand that you can, you know, maybe share pieces of it. Maybe other people can invite in it, but fundamentally, this is your turf. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about your book. We've mentioned a couple of times. What's it about? And like, who is the ideal reader for Start Finishing? The book is a bit of a Trojan horse because on the wrapper, it's about getting stuff done. It's, it's a productivity book. But really what it's about is changing your life. And here's why I say that. Um, turns out that finished projects are the bridge between your current life, your current work, and your best life, your best work, the, the life you most want to live. And if you're stuck or you're not making the progress you want to, it's because you're not finishing the types of projects that are going to propel you into that best version of yourself. Because we become by doing. That's a sort of, I didn't come up with that. That's an Aristotelian um, way back to the core, right? And so um, if you want to be something different, if you want to become something different, there's certain types of things that you need to be doing. And guess what? It's not the low-hanging fruit. It's not the easy things. It's not probably the things you find on the seven-point checklist that you downloaded from somebody else's website, right? It's that work that only you can do. And who it's for is for the creative souls out there who have a lot of ideas and a lot of things that they want to do, but for one reason or the other, they're not able to shape them into projects that they then get on their schedule and get done and roll into the next project. And so with this book, is there anything as you were writing it that surprised you along the way as far as like you weren't expecting maybe it to turn into a Trojan horse? Yeah, I kind of found out after the fact um, that I wrote an anti-establishment book. And <laughs> it, it makes sense when you look at the broader arc of my career, but I didn't necessarily set out to do it that way. Um, because productivity has looked a certain way, right? Um, and it has been written a certain way that it's excluded a lot of people. Um, it's excluded a lot of women. It's excluded a lot of people of color. And it's excluded a lot of creative souls as well, right? Um, and no disrespect to David Allen's work, um, but, you know, it's sort of the big thunder lizard in the space of product productivity. And I know so many creatives who can't get through the book because they don't see themselves in it and it, do it doesn't really speak to them. But they end up beating themselves up because there's like, what's wrong with me that this is this book is supposed to be the jam and it just doesn't sit with me. It doesn't work for me. What's wrong with me? And so the fundamental thing that I came out and with this book, I want to say is like, look, you're not uniquely defective. And if what you're reading isn't working, maybe it's because it's what you're reading isn't working and maybe it's not about you. Right. Um, and so I've been super humbled and grateful. Um, to see how many different people have shown up. It's like, you know what? Yo, this is the first book where I, I, like, I feel like someone actually gets me, right? And what's going on. And, and I'll pause on this one. one. One thing that I teach all of my clients about and all of my readers is that if it takes time, energy, and attention, it's a project. And that seems like, okay, it's a project. But think about how many things are going on in, in your personal life that are actually projects, but that you probably haven't called projects. And the reason that's important is because so many people start the productivity conversation with like, something's wrong with me. I'm not getting it done. The same thing that I said about myself when I was 26, right? Right. Um, I got to do more. It's not enough. I am not enough. 
But when you really catalog the work that so many people are doing in their lives and the work that so many people are doing to keep their family together, um, to raise kids, to create better communities, to, you know, teach young kids in peewee leagues and be the secretary of church and just all the things people do, we're really getting a lot done. And we're not actually acknowledging the work that we're doing. And so we just keep trying to add on more and more and more. And it's a bridge to nowhere, man. And so um, it's been really great to have so many people write me who either have illnesses and it's like, you know what? You're the first person that said that recovering from an illness is a project or having a chronic illness is a project or recovering from an accident is a project. And that's been the last three years of my life. And I've been beating myself up because I haven't been quote unquote productive, but I've been in pain and I've been in and out of doctor's offices every week. Um, and moms, you know, all the moms writing me, I love it. And all the people. That's why I'm glad I wrote this book in the way that I wrote this book. At the end of the day, no matter what success happens, like for those souls, man, I'm here for it. I think it's easy, Charlie, to to listen to the interview and and talking with you, um, you know, as an experienced coach and someone who just came out with the book, you know, your second book, to think like, hey, Charlie, Charlie's got it all together. Like he's got it. He's got the answers. He's got the philosophy and the practical side. Uh, So I guess I'm just curious to know. You know, where do you struggle today in your business as someone who's built it over time as speaking? Where, what does that look like? And then how do you tackle your mindset and grow um, and nurture yourself so that you can be a better coach and serve your clients and create more? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I'll be the first to go on record. I do not have it all figured out. Um, And I have, (laughs) I have many of the same struggles. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that, I knew start finishing was true. I know that sounds a weird way to say it, but I, I, I knew that it, that it was right when everything I was writing about was still working on me, right? That I was still going through the same struggle. Um, especially, you know, when I talk about the air sandwich in chapter two and, and the five core challenges of um, competing priorities, head trash, no realistic plan, too few resources, and, and poor team alignment. Man, I still struggle with those and I, I figure I'm going to for the rest of my life right now. So it's hard to believe that I'm four months out of the, the book launch. Um, it feels like much longer than that. Um, but right now, like there's all of the different opportunities rolling in from the book. There's all of the projects that the book spawned off itself. All of, I call it IP farming, intellectual property farming, where you get, you know, you got to build stuff, assets up around this sort of seeds that you put out there in the world. Um, and it's really challenging right now because there are different arcs that my business could take. Um, and I unexpectedly, you know, I thought I was a book every three or four years guy. Like that's like book every three or four years. I could do that. But I'd be damned if like before Thanksgiving, like another book was like, okay, bro, it's time. I'm like, what, what is this? <laughs> what? Well, no, no, no. I still got like two or three years of working on this book. And all the sort of stuff that's from, I don't have time for a new book, but you know, when there are certain projects that pop up like that, did you know, as a creative soul that you just got to say yes to. And so, um, that's a super big struggle right now. And quite frankly, and, and I, I want to be honest about this, every author that I've worked with or that I've known of, like, there's this 
contraction period that happens after you launch your book because you build up the team, you you know you focus so much of your effort on launching the book, and your core business suffers throughout the whole time because you've just spent the last two years birthing a book, staging a book, and promoting a book. And so there's some very leaky buckets on my um, in, in my business right now that we're having to fix and patch up. And, you know, the revenue is not lining up the way that I would like it to line up with. Um, and so there are all these sort of things that we're having to fix right now that's just straight up a challenge. Um, they're not insurmountable, but damn, I would prefer for them not to be there. And so it's a daily challenge, weekly challenge, more like, you know, right, to be like, okay, what are my five projects? Which are the ones that matter? damn, I've got seven products that I've been thinking about creating that are coming from this. And we just don't have the resources to put them all together right now. How are we going to stage and sequence them? And how is the CEO of the business and the creative person, how am I going to be patient with the fact that um, we're going to have to stage all this over time and it's not going to happen as quickly as I want it. And, oh, by the way, um, this week, I'm sick and I've got two keynotes to deliver and four, bu- four book interviews, three client sessions, no, five client sessions. That sort of stuff is still there. And so I just go back to the book. It's like, okay, what are my expectations? What can I triage? What are the competing priorities? What's my head trash? And just do the work all over again. So it's kind of like a, I end a book with this, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like before enlightenment, fetch water, chop wood. After enlightenment, fetch water, chop wood. Man, I'm still chopping wood and fetching water. Yeah, that that makes total sense to me. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you've written the book on how to start finishing. Uh, You actually finished that project was great. But, you know, it's really resonating with me when you talk about all the projects because I have, you know, every day there's two or three new ideas, right? We should be doing this. We should create that and figuring out what is the most important thing to spend you know, those critical time blocks or, uh, you know, my energy on is really, really hard. And because a lot of the ideas could be, you know, million dollar ideas or, or maybe it's not measured in money, maybe it's measured in relationships, right? So, you know, a particular thing is going to uh, create a, a better relationship or, you know, a new opportunity. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to encourage people to uh, get the book and check out the exercises that you go through there uh, because they're, really isn't a secret to finishing other than doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that. And that's the thing, man. Like there's this tension in that we as creative souls, like we're never going to be finished with our work, right? Because there's always going to be something. You do a project that's going to spawn off 18 others. And at the same time, it's really important that you finish your work. Totally agree. Yeah. In fact, the 18 don't happen unless you start finishing the work, like the next things don't, don't as easily come up. All right, Charlie. So um, I just want to thank you for spending time with us and even being so honest and vulnerable with that. The last question about where you are, it it helps to hear that, especially when we look at you and we're like, Oh, this must be easy. Right. And we know it's not easy, but just to hear um, where you are and how you're thinking about it really helps me personally. So uh, let's just remind everybody again, where they can go to, find out about to order your book and then also to find out about 
um, how they could work with you. Or maybe you could even share what are the ways people could work with you now? Are you taking clients? Do you have any other programs available? First off, Kara, Rob, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast and my how time has flown. Um, so again, thank you. Um, if you're interested in the book, you can go to startfinishingbook.com. You can download a free chapter to see if it's for you, see what other people are saying about it. Um, and so that, that's where you can go from that. As far as clients right now, I'm on a wait list until um, I think I just talked to my client services manager until about April. So if you are interested in working with me, please contact me soon, because if you contact me in April, it's going to be July. I'm really, you know, fortunate and blessed about that. And so you can go to ProductiveFlourishing.com forward slash services. Um, and you can see the different ways that I could work with clients, whether that be starting with a half day strategy session um, or just rolling into a six month strategy, strategy execution retainer. Um, really would be interested in hearing from any of you. Um, and fundamentally, though, like if you take nothing from this interview and, and this sort of question, I guess two or three things, if I may. One, um, you're not uniquely defective. Like there's nothing fundamentally broken or wrong with you that you can't figure out how to create the pathways towards the life you want to live and the work you want to do. Two, that project or those ideas that you've tucked away into the closet of your soul, like next week or within, within the next week, like touch into that and see what you can do to start pulling it out and giving it the light of the day. Um, and three, as Rob mentioned, there's not a real like secret to this except for doing the work, finishing, finding the meaning in that, rolling into it and doing it again. Wow. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. And even just for summarizing that, um, I am a fan and um, I'm just so glad we had time to chat with you today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.